Okay. Daniel chapter three is where we're at this morning. We're going to dive into this chapter and uh, we're going to do our best to make it through this chapter this morning. Um, and so there's going to be, we're going to move quickly, but there's a lot of things for us here um, that are just an account of what's going on. And so we may pull some application or make some insights uh, from those things, but uh, we're going to try and focus on the important parts of this as the Spirit has led. Uh, so Daniel chapter 3. Uh, the first thing to realize is that in there's a period of a, anywhere from 13 to 19 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so we have uh, effectively uh, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah uh, his three Hebrew friends, uh, also known as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, who are given oversight at the end of chapter 2. They're established as a result of their interpretation, their ability to give and interpret the king's dream. They're given oversight over the province of Babylon. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are given that honor. They're, they're governors in that province. And that's the capital province of the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel, it says specifically, he sets at the king's gate. That's where he's at. He has a special place of, of honor in the sense that he is there uh, at the ready, as it were, for, to give counsel to the king. And so that's where they've been in this period of time. They're ruling over the city that they're in, which is in many respects what Jeremiah the prophet told them to do by inspiration. That's what God said. Um, He told them to pray for the peace of the city that they were in. And so they're here they are operating under that understanding. We get into Nebuchadnezzar chapter one, um, excuse me, chapter three, verse one. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So in the capital province, in the capital uh, province of Babylon, he makes this image. Now, um, most of the time, if you look this up, you're going to find that he makes an image of a person. There's no real confirmation of what he's made. Uh, I will tell you, though, that the proportions um, are exactly the same as almost all known ancient obelisks, right? The Lincoln Memorial is an obelisk. It's 90 feet tall and it's nine feet wide. A 10 to one ratio is what we observe in almost all ancient obelisks. I'm of the opinion that's what he, what he put up. I don't think that it was necessarily a uh, person. That would be a very tall and skinny person. So just throwing that out there for your consideration, it doesn't matter. What we do know is that it is certainly an idol, and he's certainly requiring worship of this idol. So what he does is he sends, in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, 
and all the rulers of the province to make to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And so in the midst of this, he calls all of his leaders together to the plain of Dura, to the initiation, the, the, the unveiling, as it were, the, the open house, however you want to think about it. We're going to kick off the requirement that this is what we worship. And, and that's what he does. So failure to worship is punishable by death. If you don't worship this, this idol, you're, gonna, you're going to be punished by death. And so we have this national requirement of worship. This top-down distribution of religious requirement. And it's not unique to the Babylonian Empire. Um, in fact, most empires, most ancient empires, um, sorry, most ancient empires, their demise was preceded by uh, the requirement of religious affiliation. I mean, you think of Rome, right? You're going to worship Caesar. He is going to be considered God. We may practice, quote-unquote, religious tolerance as long as it's acceptable. You, you can have your own God, but you also have to worship Caesar. And almost every ancient empire fell, and that was a common theme. So here is Babylon, not any different. We have this top-down distribution of religious requirement. And only those who stood by faith, who stood firm, literally stood, as opposed to falling down in worship, because that's what it means. It says that they're going to uh, worship in verse... Uh, Four, uh, no, not four. Three verses six and seven it says, and whoso falls not down, prostrates himself, bows down before this idol. Whoso falls not down and worships shall the same hour be cast in the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people the nations and the languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So this is, I mean, you can imagine the scene. We have this giant tower, this structure, this image overlaid with gold, probably not solid gold, but overlaid with gold. And it's in this plane. And there's, I mean, there's strategery in that. There's a plane, first of all, there's a room for all of these people who have been invited, quote-unquote invited, to come and watch, come and worship this. I mean, they're being required. It's not an invitation. There's plenty of room for them. It's in the plane, so it's a flat area where this is viewable from a long distance. And when you hear the music, everyone bows down, falls down, prostrates themselves, and worships. It isn't just the falling down. It's the worship that is required. And so you can imagine the scene. We have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, these rulers who were there. And then the idea is that they've been required to do it, and they're, they're taking this back to their province. This isn't something that is just going to happen here in Babylon in this one event. This is something that is designed to be the common religious theme throughout the empire. 
And so you governors and you uh, sheriffs, you magistrates, you people who have been invited here, when you go back to where you're from, this is how you describe to them what they should worship. This is where it is. This is the common practice. And at a set time, everyone is, and with the music, everyone will bow down. And you may not be able to physically see this idol that we've erected, but you can still fall down and worship it. That's what's happening here. This isn't a one-time thing. This is the prescription of religious affiliation, national religion required by Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 8. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Now, if you will remember the Chaldeans, these are the guys who were the sort of the leaders, if you will, of the wise men in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, I think I put verse 14, but I think it's actually verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar's had his dream, and he has them come in, and, he, and then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, in their language, O king, live forever. And then they're the guys that are saying, we can't give you the meaning of the dream. They're sort of the wise men in respect to the astrologers and all those who were there who were called by Nebuchadnezzar to give him the meaning and the interpretation of his dream. So these guys, first off, we have to understand they have an axe to grind because they were likely disposed from the position that they may have held in Babylon, in the province of Babylon, by these Jews who could do what they couldn't. Right? So there's potentially they have an axe to grind. But in a greater sense than that, the saints, those, the people of God, will face the accusations of the enemies of God. And it shouldn't be any different to us, right? What, are, what we're memorizing through Matthew chapter 5, and blessed are ye when men shall persecute you. Right? I mean, here it is. We're going to be accused and falsely, it says, for my name's sake, for my sake. This is part of what we would expect. This is normative, I think, in the Christian religion. And it may not be so uh, extreme as what we may see here, where they're actually making accusation and saying these people aren't worshiping. And the result of that is, is death being cast in the fiery furnace but we're going to face accusation. Turn with me. Let's look at a few examples to Esther chapter 3. Now, Esther takes place uh, after Daniel. This is um, the, the Babylonian Empire has fallen. This is under the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, but we have a similar circumstance. So Esther chapter 3, verse 6. We're introduced to Haman in verse 1, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and King Agag, right? He was, there, he's a descendant here, and he was the king of the uh, Amorites, pretty sure it was the Amorites, who God commanded Saul to wipe out. And Saul didn't. And so here we have 
Haman, who, first of all, generationally hates the Jews because they wiped out his entire family. And we pick this story up here. Uh, not only this, but Mordecai, the cousin, the, the, over, the caretaker of Esther before she's queen, won't bow down to him. And he knows he's a Jew. So we pick up in verse 6, and he saw and he, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Okay? He wanted to get Mordecai, but more than that, and this looks back to that historical application where he, the Jews and the Amorites and the, the fallout there as a result of their, their commandment. And so in some respects, right, they're reaping what they've sown. The disobedience of Saul, the king of Israel, is coming full circle here. And they showed him, speaking of the king, they showed him the people of Mordecai, which are the Hebrews, the Jews. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of, of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Right? There are those who can't be trusted. You sneaky little things. If you've seen VeggieTales, you know this is this is it. But it's twofold, right? There's this generational disdain and hate, and there is this immediate personal vengeance. The enemies of God accusing the people of God. Now the Jews have been here at, at this point. They've been in Babylon. They've been in captivity for a period of time. And they're nearing the end of their captivity as we get into Esther. And really, they've been nothing but model citizens. I mean, history would bear that out. They've been nothing but model citizens. In fact, Mordecai is the guy that saw and revealed the plan of these brothers who were going to kill the king. This isn't just Old Testament stuff. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. The early church faced the same kinds of things, and Jesus, in his uh, concern for us, gave us indication that this is how it's going to be. We are going to encounter hardship. But in Acts chapter 16, I want to begin in verse 20, and we'll read through 22. We have Paul, uh, and he's delivered this uh He's delivered this gal from demon possession. And, and as a result of that, her masters see their, I mean, hey, we're, we're not going to make any money uh, any longer. She was running around soothsaying, and that's what was happening. Verse 19 uh, kind of gives us that transition. And then verse 20, and they brought them, Paul and Silas, to the magistrates, saying, these men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. Hey, they're causing trouble. Now, they haven't caused any real trouble, but these people have been personally affected, and so they're accusing them. And they teach customs, verse 20, which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans, which is an interesting thought, considering that Paul is the author of Romans, where he says, be subject to the higher powers. Verse 22, and the multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Here we have Paul and Silas, who really haven't done anything wrong. They delivered this gal from this demonic possession. And as a result of that, somebody feels that they've lost something. 
And so they're being accused. And the accusation, you see, isn't about their loss of anything. Their accusation is that somehow they're being nefarious. Somehow they're, they're sneaking in these false teachings that are, that are contrary to the law. And, and not, not the biblical law, but contrary to the law of Rome. Accusation. Acts chapter 28. There's a lot of places in the book of Acts we could have gone. Paul, uh, Peter and John were accused in Acts chapter 4 after they healed the man at the beautiful gate. In Acts chapter 28, we, we find as well in verse 22, Paul is uh, writing and, and he's from, from verse 20, he says, For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, we neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Um, the idea that there is widespread accusation against the church. Everywhere it is spoken against. And we think about where we today as believers exist in a world that is increasingly hostile, even in America where we experience, we're founded upon religious freedom so that we might pursue an active and engaged relationship with our Creator from a biblical standpoint. And that becoming more and more harassed and false accusation being brought against us. In Matthew chapter 5, and these are the verses we, we were working on memorizing this part of the verses this week. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and shall persecute you, and shall say all manner uh, of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, rejoice. This is our response. This is Jesus himself teaching, and this is what he says to you and I. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There's a long-standing history of persecution, of accusation and false accusation against the people of God. And it's exactly what we're reading about here in Daniel. The reason that these accusers are eager to accuse, whether it's in Daniel whether it's those that we would read about uh, in Acts, whether it's those that we encounter in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus is looking forward to and talking about, the reason that they are eager to accuse is a heart issue. 
it's really a sin issue. And so what I would encourage you is, number one, don't take it personally. It's not an attack against you and me personally. They haven't rejected you and they haven't rejected me. They have rejected their creator and they've rejected his truth. That's what they're rejecting. That's what they're fighting against. It's a sin issue. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's turn there and look. Let's, let's see where, I want to look at where our relationship with this interaction begins. Because we do have part of this, and this isn't new to us. We've talked about this in the past. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's begin in verse 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's a statement of fact. For you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, everything is renewed. Right? We were talking about it this morning, this idea of double imputation, that our sin was imputed, was credited to Jesus' account, and his righteousness was imputed, was counted to our account. We are, in fact, new, not just uh, to zero, not a net zero in regard to our sin debt, so to speak, but we are declared righteous, giving something that is equal to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. New creatures, verse 18, and all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God in Christ, reconciling the word, world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and is committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. I want to pause there for just a moment. Right here we stand, we have this idea that we are new creatures in Christ through the redemption that we received by faith. And as a result of that, we're given this ministry, this ministry of reconciliation, where we can go and tell people the truth. This is how we find salvation. This is where we find redemption and relationship, reconciliation with our Creator. That's what we get to share. And he says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the message bearers. We are those representatives in the world around us. Just like Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego, those guys, just like those guys were ambassadors, they were representative of their God, the God of the Bible, the living true God to the world around them. And the way they took their stand was literally to stand. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship this idol. And for you and I in the world that we live in today, we may have a similar kind of stand to make. The stand that you're going to encounter may be slightly different than the stand that I've got to make, but nonetheless, we are those ambassadors that say, I'm going to represent the kingdom and the principles of this kingdom to the world around me. And I'm not going to do that thing that you want me to do. That's where we're at. That's the world that we live in. Unfortunately, I think that there is a perception that 
the church at large is ashamed of the position that we hold. Here's Daniel and these three Hebrews, and they refused to bow down and worship, no matter what the consequence. There was no shame in their hearts and minds in regard to the truths that God had revealed in his word. And we need to have the same position, the same understanding. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. In this context, when we're talking about this, how does that shame manifest itself? We don't stand. We don't say. We don't represent the kingdom, whether it's in word or deed. And really, it's going to take both. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul begins, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So whatever gospel principles there may be, Paul says, I am not ashamed of them. The truth that God has revealed in his word, I stand firmly upon it. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Right here it is. The wrath of God is revealed. Right? All that means to you and me who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? We've, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, we've looked at the bronze serpent that was put up there. Jesus would say in John chapter 3 that we are born again. Everything is made new. We are adopted into the family of God. That in the truth, in his word, is where the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's revealed there. The penalty for sin is clearly spelled out. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. In the same gospel, in the same place that God shows his wrath, the penalty for sin, he shows the solution for sin. He shows how it may be redeemed from the penalty of sin, how it may be removed from us. That's the reconciliation that is being discussed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to, unto them. For the invisible things of the world of, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. In addition to writing it down in black and white, unequivocally, equivocably, God says, listen, I'll show it to you in my creation. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Okay, So here's the heart of the, uh, those who would make accusation against God's people. 
right? We stand on this side, having seen and tasted that the Lord is good, having been reconciled and redeemed, and they stand on the other side, having the same truth before them and not receiving it, but rejecting it. And what does it expose within them? It exposes within them a heart that doesn't want to acknowledge the truth. Their foolish hearts were dark. In verse 22, they professed themselves to be wise. Just as these Chaldeans, they may be wise, they may, they may know a lot of things, but they profess themselves to be wise, to be the experts. And all they've done, it says in verse 23, is they've changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They take the truths of who God is and they attribute them to the things that he has created, whether it's man, whether it's animals, other parts of his creation, it doesn't matter. All of that brings about to them a God that they can palate, something that is acceptable, something that is tenable to them. Anything but the truth. Anything but the truth. This is the heart of the accuser. This is those who would stand. Now in John chapter 3, because here we are as ambassadors, let's go to John chapter 3. We are those who are bringing this simple message of reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ. And these are those who are rejecting of it, who are making accusation against us falsely, so that they may not have to have that light shining into their lives anymore. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, but that the world through him might be saved. What did Jesus come to do? Redeem mankind, that the world through him might be saved. That is the truth. That is the heart of God revealed in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. His mercy and his love is on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 would tell us that God showed us his love, that he commended it towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it continues on, and it gives us some insight. This is the heart of God. This is where he's at. This is what he is offering, what he has provided fully and completely. But he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I want to just pause there for a moment, right? We talked about the, that punishment, the, comment, the wrath of God for sinfulness, for unrighteousness being clearly understood and revealed. All the way back in the very beginning, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, when they chose to engage in sin and eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God told them what would happen. He said, in the day that you do, you will die. The consequence of sin is death. We reap, even as believers, we reap the physical manifestation of that promise of that consequence. But on the other side of that, for you and I as believers, we don't reap the second, the spiritual part of that, where we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually alive. 
We've been given the water and the bread as Jesus would use those illustrations. So we never thirst. We have that eternal life. But those who are outside of Christ, as it says, they are condemned already. Not because of what they've done, but because of their sin nature. They're going to sin. They have sinned. Anyone that says they haven't is sinning in the midst of that because they're lying. Sin is our predisposed position. We are born at enmity, enemies of God. We are not on his team. And the penalty for, for you and I there is death. We are condemned already. And this is a condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So here's the heart. We are standing here as the ambassadors of God, revealing the righteousness of God, the mercy and the love of God, the wrath of God for sinfulness. And what it forces them to acknowledge is their need. And when we look at the need that we have for Jesus Christ, we have to acknowledge our sinfulness. We have to acknowledge that even though I've done righteous things, even though I am a quote-unquote good person, even though I'm not as bad as other people or I thought I was doing right, I was very sincere, I'm still a sinner. I'm still in desperate need of the righteousness of Christ. And that's a truth that many are unwilling to accept. It's a truth that many are unwilling to, to grab onto and to receive. Verse 20 says, For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want them to be understood and known for what they really are. They don't want to grapple with their sinfulness. But he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The reason that these accusers are eager to accuse is a reflection of their heart. They don't like the light that we may bring shining into their life. We as ambassadors are that. We are ambassadors representing. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we get ready to move on. 1 Peter chapter 4. From the standpoint of everyone there in the plain of Dura, with looking at this idol that's been erected, there's no reason for them not to bow down and worship. We're faced with imminent death, cast into the burning, fiery furnace, if we don't. There's no reason for them not to. But they look at these three young men, and, and I'm convinced there's four, because even though Daniel's not mentioned, he's still alive. So he's obviously writing. And they have to notice a difference. Why would they not stand? Why would they not bow down? Why would they not? And the accusers, those who have this evil heart, take the opportunity to accuse them. But their witness stands. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, 
wherein, and here he is, he's, he's talking about our life in the past, how we had plenty of time to live like everyone else, to remain and hide out in the darkness. And then at some point, we accept Christ. We, re- we turn from where we were, and we turn to the living God, and we accept the salvation that is offered in Jesus alone. And he says, wherein they, those who are still in darkness, they think it's strange that you run not with them. They thought it's strange, all these other people, that they wouldn't bow down, that you wouldn't run with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? We talked about it briefly this morning in Sunday school that sometimes we perceive that those who are accusing us, those who are pursuing unrighteousness, that they're getting away with it. And they're not. It says that they will give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. They're going to give an account. They stand before God. They've rejected him. They've rejected his truth. They didn't reject you and me. We're not going to take it personal. They've rejected him, his truth, the salvation that he's offered them. And they're going to have to answer for why. Our duty is to stand. Our duty is to be the light in the dark. Now, if we look at the accusation that's being made here, because we need to be wise, we need to be perceiving of what's going on around us. The accusation that it's being made here, uh, we find it in verse 12. So the Chaldeans, they come to Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to give their accusation. And it says, There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee, they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, there are some true statements there. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar did set them over Babylon. We read that at the end of chapter two. That is their job. They are, in fact, governors. They were invited or required to be at this event. They were there. They, were, they knew the consequences. That is true accusation. It's also true that they don't serve Babylonian gods, and they made that very clear when they got to Babylon. We're not going to defile ourselves with the king's meat. We're not going to allow ourselves anything that might cause us to trust in something besides the living God. They've made that clear from the very beginning. It's no surprise to anyone. Now, granted, a period of time has passed here between chapters 1 and 2. And that's something we need to understand. We don't know how much interaction they have with King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't don't have any of those specifics. What has he forgotten? I mean, he's running an empire. What has he forgotten? But they also lie. There's a little bit of truth in their accusation, but there's also the lie that says they don't regard the king, which is an untruth. Here's Jeremiah, the prophet, telling them, listen, when you come in, uh, I think it's in Jeremiah chapter 27. Don't quote me on that. We've looked at it. But he says, when you come in, pray for the peace of the city that you're in. We're working for the establishment because then we might have peace as well. From your perspective and from mine, in the world that we live in today, 
we have in Romans 13, part of the scripture, part of what God has told you and I as believers is to honor those that he has established as rulers. And we've talked about this and we've looked at it even here in the book of Daniel. It's part of what we do. It's part of how we honor the Lord. It's part of how we represent his kingdom. Romans chapter 13. Let's look at verse 7. Romans 13, verse 7. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We took some time. We took, in fact, we took significant time to study through this passage because this is something that we end up faced with in our world today. And it's always been true that God is establishing those for his plans and purposes who are going to be in ruling roles. And we have a responsibility before that. It's part of our obedience unto the Lord. And so while the accusation may be made against you and I as believers, that somehow we stand against our country, somehow we stand against this or we stand against that, the reality of the fact of the matter is We've been told to honor and to fear and to give regard to those that we are to give regard to. Now, the truth is also that we are first and foremost submitted to the Lord, to our Creator. And that's going to supersede any allegiance that we may have here in this life, on this earth. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, let's look in verse 17 through 33. We may not read the whole thing, but we want to get a sense of what's going on here. So we have the church growing. We have Ananias and Sapphira. They've lied to the Holy Spirit. They're drug out. Uh, that's at the beginning of the chapter. We have uh, the signs and wonders that are being done by the apostles, so much so that they, they bring the sick people out so that Peter's shadow will just fall across them as he walks down the street. Um, and that's where we pick up. And then in verse 17, it says, Then the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. What do they see? They see a growing movement. They see something that is happening here. The people are curious. The people want. The people are seeing the signs and wonders. God is confirming the authenticity of his church right here in Jerusalem. And they're filled with indignation because we're the guys. We're the ruling class. We're those that God has established. And they have their personal problems with that as well. We're losing revenue. We're <laughs> Jesus's overthrow of the tables there, the money changers in the temple was, and they're ups, being upset about that. Had nothing to do with their righteousness there. Had everything to do with how they were lining their pockets through the extortion that was happening. And so that same kind of thing is happening here. There, there's a perception of loss to them, and they're filled with indignation. We put the guy to death, and yet. What he's trying to establish is still growing. 
and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, go stand and speak in the temple to the people, all the words of this life. In other words, I'm letting you out and I want you to go to the temple and I want you to preach the gospel. That's what he's saying. And what do they do? And, they, and when they heard that, verse 21, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and they called the council together, and all the sins of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. All right, so hey, they're already over here. They, they've been let out by the angel of the Lord, and they're in the temple preaching the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, which they've been forbade to preach in all the way back long time ago in, in Acts chapter 4, and they get together in the morning, and they send the jailer to go get the apostles. And when the jailer gets there, what does he find? They're already gone. And in fact, they're in the temple right now preaching about Jesus Christ, whom we forbade them to preach about. Verse 27. In Acts chapter 5. So they're sent, they, they send soldiers, the captain, to go get them. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The accusation is made, listen, I mean, first of all, yeah, we did. We clearly commanded you not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, your intent is you to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, he says, listen, you're going to turn all of Jerusalem against us because we would be the ones who crucified him, who had him put to death. That's, their, that's part of their concern. What they don't understand, what they don't understand is that salvation that was purchased was purchased for all of mankind. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through them might be him might be saved. If these, even the rulers here who cried for his crucifixion and brought him to Pilate and incited the crowd to cry, crucify him with them, would turn their heart in faith to Jesus Christ, they would be saved. Jesus isn't a respecter of persons. But they don't, want, they don't want any of that. They're unaccepting of the truth. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. And you consider what Jesus said as he's leaving the earth. He said, listen, go teach everyone everywhere in my name, teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. We're going to obey God. We're going to obey him rather than you. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. Which is a very significant statement. Prince, right? The descendant, the heir to the throne of David and the Messiah. That's what savior means. 
That's a very significant statement to this particular Jewish audience. God has established him. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's a reference here, that, and they, they understood exactly what he was saying. For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. As we've been studying through in Sunday school, right, that there, there was always this covering of sins, and then there was this transition with the prophet Jeremiah, and the discussion ceased to be about covering of sin, a temporary covering, and something looking forward to a forgiveness of sins. These guys being the experts in the law, being those who are uh, there as the priests to offer the sacrifices and do the things that would provide the covering, would fully understand that what seems to be an insignificant difference in English. They would know this is something big, that God is giving forgiveness of sins through this man, Jesus Christ. And he says, we are his witnesses ambassadors, those who would take the message of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God has given to them that obey him. And when they heard this, these are the accusers, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Here's the truth, and the light shines into the darkness, and they have to make a decision at this point. Are we going to receive this? Are we going to acknowledge our need for Jesus Christ, for the, the salvation that is offered? Or are we going to reject it? When they're cut to the heart, they are faced with the decision. And they took counsel to slay them. Their decision is pretty obvious. When we face these accusations, we have to understand there's going to be some truth and there's going to be some lie in the midst of that. And we have to be acknowledging of the truth because the truth is the truth. And we have to be willing and able to, accept, to explain that truth. Just as Peter did here, he said, listen, we ought to obey God rather than men. That is the truth. The only reason we would disobey you guys is because what you're commanding us to do is against what God commanded us to do. So are we willing, right? We're talking about, and we've spent a lot of time delving into apologetics, being able to give an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within us, to make a biblical defense of the principles and the doctrines of Scripture. Can we do that? That's what Peter did. He took the truth, the doctrine that has been established throughout Scripture, and he carefully explained it in a simple sentence. We have to obey God rather than man. And then he went on, and he took the opportunity while he's there, and he shares a little bit of the gospel, and he left them with a choice. You and I may not be in the same circumstances as Peter and the apostles, where those that we're making our defense to, that we're making, uh, that we're standing and having the opportunity to witness before, are, are going to be kings of, and, and emperors or, or religious leaders. We may not stand in that position. Here's Daniel's 
three friends and they stand and they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. They have to answer why before the king, before the guy who, as far as they're concerned, is able to put them to death. Jesus addressed this in, in Luke, well, actually in all the Gospels. We're going to look in Luke chapter 12. I want to start in verse 1 because he speaks directly about what we do when we're brought before people to give an answer. And we may be faced with this, and I, and I hate to be the doomsayer because that's not, that's not who, who I usually am. But we may be faced with this as a reality where we have to make a defense for what we believe and why we've responded in faith, why we've stood on truth in rejection of whatever may be going on around us. It could happen. I mean, there are not that far away. I mean, you can drive to Canada in like 13 hours. And there are currently right now pastors in Canada in prison because they speak from the pulpit what God's word says in regard to homosexuality. I mean, there are neighbors. It's right there. It could happen. I think, I think the reality is more likely than not. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, In the meantime, when they when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trode on one up another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, that which corrupts the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here's the thing. The Pharisees knew the law. I mean, that's what they were zealous about. They knew it inside and out. But their personal lives indicated, proved that they were unwilling to live the law they were so, quote unquote, zealous about. That's the hypocrisy. That's the hypocrisy. So here are you and I as believers, he's saying, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. This is the things of God. This is where he stands. Are we willing to live it? Are we willing to be obedient? This isn't works. This isn't something to earn or merit favor with God. This is, a, well, we're going to get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to address that in just a moment, okay? But that's, that's the leaven of the Pharisees, saying one thing and doing another. Are we as believers, as those ambassadors of Christ, providing a consistent message to the world around us. He says in verse 2, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. You're not going to get away with it. It's going to be exposed. People are going to see. In other words, therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall it be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Right? Here's the thing. If we say, listen, God has in fact established all authorities, and we're going to obey them in so much that they 
are not causing us to disobey God. And then we stand around and we badmouth them. And, I, and I'm not saying we can't articulate a, a negative opinion, but you know the difference, right? Defame them. Are we owning up to the acknowledgement that this is obviously God's man or he wouldn't be there? This is the person that God has established in leadership or they wouldn't be there. Be not afraid of them to kill the body, and after that, have no more they can do. If, you're, if you can in good conscience say it in private, you should be able to in good conscience say it in front of anyone and everyone. And if you can't, then you probably shouldn't say it at all. Right? Thumper's dad knew what he was talking about. But I will forewarn you, verse 5, whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he, is, he hath killed has power to cast into hell. Yea, say unto you, fear him. In other words, our ultimate fear, our ultimate allegiance, that which we should fear is God himself. And Jesus continues, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hair of your heads are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. We don't have to just simply whisper it in the dark. We can say it. We don't have to be ashamed of the truth of the gospel. We don't have to be ashamed of the principles of God's kingdom. We can articulate those. We can stand upon those without any shame. And he says, listen, this is it. I am with you. If I'm willing to watch over and to know about a couple of birds, insignificant little sparrows, and know the absolute number of hair on your heads at any given moment, do we have to worry? Do we have to sneak about? Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you unto the synagogues, and this is the, the substantive part as we look at this passage this morning, when they bring you unto the synagogues, and under the magistrates and powers, take you no thought how or what thing you shall answer, what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. We don't have to have this masterful defense all planned out and put together and stand there with every, right? What we're going to trust is the Holy Spirit is going to give us those things to say. He gave Peter the things to say, and it cut them to the heart. And at the same time, we're going to be yielded to those things. Now, that doesn't give us the excuse to not study to show ourselves a workman that is, needs not be ashamed, because we're rightly dividing the word. It doesn't give us that excuse. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But what it does mean is that God is sovereign and in his providence has brought us to that audience 
And that's the way we should view it. This audience that we might articulate what he wants us to articulate. Here is Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and they stand before the Nebuchadnezzar who literally holds their lives, their physical lives in his hand. And he tells them, you will bow down and worship this idol that I've established when you hear the music. Back in Daniel chapter 3, let's look at verses 15 through 18. Well, I'm going to start in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and his fury, after he gets the report of, of these Jews, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then he brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image that I have set up? Is it true? And he says, Now if you be ready... That at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship in the image I have made. Well, effectively, I'm going to give you one more chance, guys. And if you do, if you do exactly what I say, if you fall down, if you worship this idol, when you hear the music like you're supposed to, it's going to be well with you. You're, you're going to get out of this. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? He reminds them of his authority. He, we have these guys in between the proverbial rock and a hard place. We have nowhere to go. We're standing before the king. He can literally command all these people and any one of them to throw us into the fiery furnace. They've already, it's ready. He's told us exactly what's going to happen. And he challenged them. He says, what God can deliver you out of my hands? Which should give us some indication of where Nebuchadnezzar's heart is right now, isn't it? And this is part of the reason why some people will illustrate that idol that was put up. As, as a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Because I am equal with God. I stand here. Who can deliver you out of my hands? It's possible. We don't really know for sure. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We're between a rock and a hard place. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to wiggle out of this. But if God is for us, who can be against us? We need to trust his sovereignty. We need to trust that where we are is where we're supposed to be, that his providence is at play, as we've talked about in the past. And here's the thing. I want you to understand that it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that it's going to shake out exactly the way that we think it should or that we would hope it would but it's going to definitely shake out in the way that brings him the most honor and glory and brings people to a, the clearest and fullest understanding of the gospel. Let's read their response. Beginning in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said 
to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. That word careful, it literally means there is no need that we answer you in this matter. Effectively, they're, they're just throwing it all out right there. We've already given you our answer. We didn't bow down the first time. We're not going to do it again. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, we read that, it says, if it be so. And we read that, and in English, it's almost a, uh, there's, it almost can be interpreted as if there's some doubt. But what it really means, and if you look in uh, some other translations, they translate it a little more accurately. It, it, it says, it is so that our God can deliver us. There's no question. They are certain of the ability, the faithfulness, and love of God. They're absolutely confident that God can deliver them, but they're not absolutely certain of the outcome. They don't know exactly what God is going to do in that circumstance because he's there. He's going to do whatever needs to be done to bring himself the most glory, to portray the gospel the most accurately. So they're not certain of the outcome. They, they don't know exactly what's going to happen. And they say that in verse 18. But if he doesn't deliver us, he can. But if he chooses not to, it doesn't change the outcome of what's going to happen here. In Psalm 27, I want to look at a few verses here because we may, as I said, we may be faced with certain similar circumstances at some point. Who knows? And we need to have, and even if it isn't certain life and death circumstances, it doesn't matter. The persecution, the hardship that we may face, we might lose a job. We may lose a relationship. None of those, those things are, are applicable here. Psalm 27, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. You notice here that there's certainty. The Lord is this thing. This is absolutely true of God and who he is. In Isaiah 26.3, this is a memory verse not too long ago. I don't know the fourth verse. I apologize. Isaiah 26, 3, thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. And Psalm 23, the, the, the shepherd psalm there, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, makes, he leads me beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. This is where Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's confidence is. This is where their heart is. 
Their trust is completely and wholly in the Lord. They're unwavering in their devotion, in their faith, in their trust. They know that he can. They know that he might even be desirous, but they don't. They know that he also may not for his intents, for his purposes. And I'll tell you this, that every martyr throughout history has had the same assurances and held the same position that God can, but if he doesn't, it doesn't change my devotion to him. Turn with me to Romans 14. Romans 14, verses 7 through 8. Paul reminds us, and Paul was familiar with persecution and hardship. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Perfectly willing to give of everything that he has because he trusts. These three guys have a persevering trust in the Lord. Now, in, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, this is where God in the Ten Commandments is giving the, the, the commands that, hey, listen, you don't have any other gods before me. You don't make idols and worship them. That is the basis of their refusal. The basis of their refusal is their obedience to the Word of God, what He has said. And He's made it very clear and they're not going to do anything that jeopardizes that. They want to honor him in all that they do. They have a persevering trust. And in the same respect, when we are going to stand upon truth, when we're going to exercise a persevering trust ourselves, the basis of our obedience is the word of God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin here in verse 10. Peter and John are standing there and they're being accused. They're, they're on trial for healing the invalid man there at the beautiful gate. And, and Peter starts with this in many respects. He says, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, excuse me, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Okay, so he proclaims, first of all, it wasn't us. We, we were just his disciples. We're those who are following in his footsteps, doing as he's commanded us. And here it is. Jesus Christ has done this. And he continues on and he gives them some biblical foundation for Jesus Christ. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. There's an Old Testament reference here all the way back in Psalm 118, where it talks about this stone that was established as the cornerstone, and it's going to be rejected. And he, and he continues, neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. This is it. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and him alone. 
And it says in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness, they, that's those who are putting them on trial, the Sadducees, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. I mean, they were fishermen. They weren't scholars. They weren't educated. They weren't, they weren't those that stood and orated before the people. They marveled. And this is an even more significant statement, not just that they marveled, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with him, they could say nothing against it. I mean, here's the guy, he couldn't walk. We've all seen him here day after day after day for his entire life before the beautiful gate, asking for alms. And here he is now standing. Not only that, yesterday he was walking and leaping and praising God. But when they commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all of them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Right? We have to acknowledge something miraculous has happened. Here's the guy walking around but that it spread no further among the people. It should be a red flag that there's any but whatsoever. They told us that this was done by Jesus. This is the power of Christ. This is the authentication of the truth of the gospel. But we're going to reject that. We don't want it to spread anymore among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. At this point, right, they're, they're conspiring. They bring Peter and John back in and they tell them that you can't speak. They commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. This is the threatening that they give them. This is it. You cannot speak in the name of Jesus. You can't preach in his name. You can't teach in his name. And the truth of the word of God, the basis upon which their, their obedience stands, is the truth that God has already spoken. That Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was, and confirmed it over and over and over, fulfilling prophecy, all of those things that led up to it, him forgiving sin, all of those things, healing the paralytic man there at the beautiful gate. And Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than, to, more than unto God, judge ye. And you got to note the phrasing here, right? You judge whether it's right for us to obey God or to obey you. Because you're telling us to do something that is contrary to what God has said. He makes it very clear in his statement, but he's, he's not antagonistic. He just says, you judge that. You judge that. Peter is in that statement, yielding himself to whatever consequence may come as a result of standing for the Lord completely and holy. And at the same time, he's causing them to think about what they're, what they're left with. He continues, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
We have to say these things. We have to speak. We have to. This is what God has commanded us to do. You judge whether it's good for us to obey God or to obey you. Because you're clearly telling us to do something that is disobedient to God. Obedience results from faith, and it's the expression of our love to God. It's the expression of our love to God. God showed us his love and that he didn't condemn us. That he, he shows us his love in compassion and in mercy. We show God love in obedience. In 1 John, and there are many references to this, in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They're not hard. It isn't like I wake up in the morning and woe is me. I have to do that which God has commanded me to do. He's not asking us to do anything that we are not, first of all, going to benefit directly from. We're going to reap the success. The We're going to reap the good things associated with obedience. But this is how we show God our love for him. For whatsoever, whoso, excuse me, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus is the son of God? Whether we live, whether we die, and Peter would agree, whether we live, whether we die. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, whether we live, whether we die, this is how we overcome the world, to operate in faith, to stand here in obedience to what God has said. And so they're immediately out of the pot and into the fire, literally. That's, that's what happens to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. These three Hebrew boys who stand there and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we are not going to worship. In fact, don't even play the music again. There's no need that we would answer you because it's not going to change anything. And the response is this, in verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury and the form of his visage, his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated right? Fire that puppy up. Hot. Seven times more than we've ever fired it before. And when you think about this, this, uh, this furnace, right, what we have to understand is that, I mean, it's like a brick kiln. This is a building designed to stack wet bricks in, light a fire in the middle, and it, the heat will bake the bricks. That's what this is. In fact, they found one in Babylon, and the inscription on it said, and we don't know if it was this furnace, but it says, this is where we burn those, this is paraphrase, this is where we burn those who don't worship the Babylonian gods. That's the inscription written right on it. This is not something little. We think of a furnace, we, think it, we need to understand, you go look up an ancient brick kiln, these are buildings. 
there's more than enough room for three guys to go in there and be burned up. Okay. We're not talking about something small. This is a big deal. And they're going to heat this thing seven times hotter than it's ever been heated. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen. So they got their pants on and their hats and their other garments. And they were cast in the midst of the fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Right, so get this, it's so hot that the strongest men that were brought to throw these guys into the furnace were killed in the process. And Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego fall down into the flames. That's where they're at. It didn't matter what was going to happen to them. They were going to walk in obedience to God. And it surely meant their life. They knew exactly what was on the line when they made their decision. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, and he rose up in a haste, and he spake, and he said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? And they said, Yeah. That's what it says. They said, Yeah. True, O king. That means, yeah. And he answered, he said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking around in the midst of this fiery furnace, walking around in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Form of the fourth, it's like the Son of God. Their bonds are burned. I mean, they're loose. They're walking around free. And I think that in the midst of this, right, that we, we look at this, and there's a couple of applications for us to make. Here we've been talking about the heavy topic of whether or not we face persecution and how we stand there honoring the Lord, even in the face of certain death. And then on the other side of this fire, right, that which is going to consume our life, we find freedom. And that's ultimately true, right, that in Christ, we have that freedom. We have the assurance of where we're going to go. Our, we are loose. We are free. They're walking around and they're unhurt so much. So look at verse 27. The princes, the governors, and the captains, the king counselors being together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no, had no power, right? So they're in the fire, this super hot furnace that even killed the people who were throwing them into it. And they're, they're unharmed, even so much that the hairs weren't singed, neither were their coats changed. Yeah, their clothes are just fine, nothing, no harm to them whatsoever. Nor the smell of fire had passed on them. They didn't even smell like smoke. That's how unharmed they were. God didn't just deliver them. He delivered them completely and without any reservation. Now, it turns me to Psalm 91 for just a moment. Psalm 91, verses 3 through 9. Psalm 91, verses 3 through 9. 
surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eye shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. Because we chose to trust in the Lord completely and wholly, because we chose to abide in him and his truth without any reservation, we're going to be delivered. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily a reference to physical deliverance. It may be. We may experience physical deliverance. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? That God may remove us or the circumstance from us that's causing us hardship. But it, it, even if he doesn't remove that, the truth is this, right? He talks about here that we see the, the destiny, if you will, of the unrighteous. And we talked about this condemnation, that this is the condemnation already in John chapter 3, verse 19. The men love darkness rather than light. They are condemned. They stand there. Their destiny is certain, and it's eternal spiritual death. But our destiny is life in Christ. Right? For you and I to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So when we talk about their bonds being burned, when we talk about the deliverance, when we talk about them being unharmed, unscathed by the fire, that which would, would be there in their life, there are so many applications that we can make. The ultimate, maybe not the ultimate application, but the end conclusion, right, is that even in the midst of their looking at death, they're delivered. That we who are in Christ are delivered from this to something better. And even if we aren't, even if we are spared our life, even if we go through the hardship, through the fire, it's a refining process. We're on the other side of it. We are made more like Christ. We talked about it this morning, right? In Sunday school, that here is God and he, those that he loves, those that he is pleased with, he's going to chasten correct. And he may allow persecution in your life or in my life to be part of the process by which we would be molded into the image of Christ. Now, Nebuchadnezzar looks and he says, look, the, the, the fourth, the form of the fourth is like the son of God. And if you're looking in the King James, they, counsel, they, they capitalize S and G, the son of God. So the question is this, is this a Christophany? Is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm, I tend to be very careful with those. There are those that, are, that I can say are pre-incarnate manifestations of Christ, like Melchizedek. Why do I say that? Because the New Testament tells us that was Jesus Christ. We don't have to guess. This, has, this doesn't have a biblical confirmation. It could be, 
but at the same time, it may not be. And I tend to fall to the side that it really isn't. It doesn't have to be for God to have delivered miraculously by sending his angels, which is, I think, really what happened. When you get to verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, which is really the same word, sent his angel. Now, he's not an expert. Nebuchadnezzar is not an expert. So I'm not weighing too heavily on that. But in Psalm 34, verse 7, Let's look at some other places where we might gain some biblical context. Um, if people want to believe that this is a Christophany, I don't know that it's a problem. Like I said, there is a possibility. Uh, verse 34, Psalm 34, verse 7. says, the angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord. God has... In some respects, he's got these, these angels that are, they're watching out for things. And they're doing what he tells them to do. Okay? In Job chapter 1 and Job 38, we find the angels clearly referred to as sons of God. And it's exactly, this, it's the Hebrew equivalent of the Aramaic word here in Daniel. And we have to realize that that's an Aramaic word. It's not Hebrew. But I'm just saying there is a biblical basis that we can point to and say the sons of God being referring to angels. And it's not just in those places. So I tend to lean toward this was not a Christophany. This wasn't a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, some people may say, well, if it's not a Christophany, maybe it's a theophany which would be a physical manifestation of God to people. Uh, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire are theophanies. That's God himself manifesting himself to the people. I don't, I don't necessarily think this is a theophany at all, but one way or the other, God miraculously delivers them. Either Jesus comes and here they are, delivered and sustained in the midst of this fire, or he sends his angel to do the same thing. One way or the other, God is delivering these guys miraculously. I only bring it up because it's something that we need to know about here. I don't think that it's critical to the story. Now, here are the results. Let's look at the results of God's faithfulness. Results of God's faithfulness. Verse 26. Now, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace, and he spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. There's a recognition of the supremacy of the living God. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Babylon, they, they worshiped many gods. They had a supreme deity, uh, Marduk, but they, they, they had a pantheon of gods that they worshiped. And here's Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging this is, you guys are the servant of the most high God. You're his servants. He's delivered you. I mean, there, that's where he's at. There's an acknowledgement of that. Verse 29, he says, Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, language, which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. 
by the way, there are many historical references to under, Bab under Nebuchadnezzar's rule of people being cut in pieces and <laughs> their houses being made dunghills. This is something he did. He didn't mean this metaphorically. He literally did this. The second result is they don't dishonor the Lord. That's, it's a proclamation in the kingdom. Don't dishonor the Lord, the living God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Not only that, but we see the promotion of the faithful. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The reason they were promoted isn't because they proved themselves to be strong. The reason they were promoted is because God was proven to be strong in who he said he was. And they were proven to be his servants. It may not always work that way. We, we read instances in scripture where that wasn't the outcome. But nonetheless, the outcome is that God is recognized for who he is. Whether they acknowledge it, like Nebuchadnezzar did, or whether they choose to reject it and cover it up, like the Sadducees with Peter and John. He is made known, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the ultimate outcome may be. I want to close this morning, and I want to talk about living sacrifice, because that's what Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were effectively. They were living sacrifices. They chose that no matter what would happen, no matter how this shook out, that God could, but maybe he won't. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to deny him. Just like Job would say in Job 13.5, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And this is part of the unsavory, the unpleasant truth, so to speak, of Christianity. And I say unpleasant, and it really, it, it, nobody wants to talk about dying. And I mean, that's, sure, I get it. But what we have to, we, we probably need to qualify that a little bit better. We as believers need to qualify that a little better. It isn't that it's unsavory, that it's hard truth, maybe hard for us to, to grapple with. But in the end, it's, God's faithfulness. In the end, it's what it's for God's glory and for his honor. And we would choose to live that way. And by God's grace, we would choose to die that way if it became necessary. In Romans chapter one, excuse me, chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. that you present your bodies, your lives, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He tells you and I, and, and we spent a lot of time as we looked at this passage, that we present our lives, our, our bodies, a living sacrifice. This isn't a means, and I just want to get this out here right at the very beginning. This isn't a means to earning salvation. This isn't somehow making us favorable to God and so much so that he would give us eternal life. That's No, this is the result of a heart that has been saved. 
This is a result of being brought into his kingdom. This is a reciprocation of the love that we've received from God the Father in his son, Jesus Christ, who did everything, absolutely everything necessary to redeem us. And he freely offers that, even to the sacrifice of his own son, so that we might be made his children and declared to be righteous. And you and I may, at some point, who knows, in our lives, be called upon to stand. Now, the living sacrifice, the giving of our bodies, may not require that we have to give our lives per se in a literal form. It may. There are martyrs after martyrs after martyrs that have done just that. But there are also those who stood, who no matter what the cost to them was, were willing to say that my life, my physical comfort, the things that I cherish here, so to speak, are nothing by comparison to the glory and the honor of the Lord. So even if I suffer loss or harm as a result, I'm going to stand for him. And that's the hard part, because there are many things that we hold near, that we hold dear, many things that we love, people that we are concerned for, things that we enjoy. And am I willing to do whatever God has called me to do, whatever circumstance I may find myself in? Stand to be a living sacrifice. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were completely devoted. They were living sacrifices. And in the end, their lives, their sacrifice was a witness to everyone who was there. Just as ours may be a witness for who God is, for the salvation that he offers in Jesus Christ, that we would be willing to serve him above all. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We praise you. And Lord, we just pray that you would, by your grace, help us to be representatives of you. Lord, we would all hope and we would pray for one another that we wouldn't be faced with those circumstances, that we wouldn't be faced with tough decisions. But Lord, in the same breath, we would all pray for the same grace that we might be living sacrifices. We might be those witnesses even unto the end, if necessary, for you, our King and our Savior. God, we pray for those uh, that are in leadership. We pray for our country. We lift those things up to you, Lord, asking that you would hear our prayers in that regard, that we might live peaceable lives, even as your word says. And at the same time, Lord, by your spirit, would you lead us into your word and into truth, that we might be ready and equipped to give those answers as we have opportunity to stand for you. Knowing, Lord, that it may not be before kings and governors, but it may be before friends and neighbor and family. And that, Lord, your Holy Spirit is going to give us utterance to your glory and to their betterment, to their hearing of the gospel. We pray for them now, Lord, those who will hear we pray for their hearts that they would be softened, that they might uh, be receptive to the truths of Scripture. 
And God, I pray that as we continue through our study in the book of Daniel, Lord, we would be equipped and challenged and furnished unto every good work that you would call us to. We praise you now, Lord, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.